We're going to be reading from Kings 2, 2 Kings 2, beginning at verse 1. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to, out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both stood, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit in me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up, by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there, there are your, sorry, there are you with your, sorry, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. 
Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. A wonderful passage for those who are uh, follically challenged, uh, struggling with baldness, isn't it? Uh, wonderful passage all round. Uh, one of those uh, passages that maybe we've read from the Old Testament. Uh, a great story, uh, but often we struggle to know uh, how to take it, how to read it, how to understand uh, what God is saying to us today. So as we begin, let's pray uh, and recognize that we're only going to understand it if God uh, shows us. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for uh, your word. Uh, we thank you for wonderful stories that uh, interest us and excite us. But we thank you that through these wonderful stories, you can actually teach us about yourself, the work of Jesus, and what you're doing in our world and in our lives today. And we pray, Lord God, that you would do that um, by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm pretty sure that uh, at some stage or another, you have heard people talk about the good old days. Uh, maybe that's your grandparents, uh, where they get this uh, misty-eyed, faraway look, and they talk about in the good old days. And maybe thinks about how life was simpler and there wasn't technology, or maybe it was just the fact that they were younger and they could uh, do the things that they wanted. Um, parents of, of younger children, and even older children, sometimes talk about um, the good old days, the BC years, uh, not the before Christ, but the before children uh, years, uh, when they could uh, have their evenings and their weekends to themselves, uh, the days before nappy changing and getting up in the middle of the night, the good old days. Sometimes, as followers of Jesus, we might even think about the good old days, uh, those times in the past where our faith seems so much more real. When we were excited uh, about being a Christian, when we were enthusiastic about ministry and mission, and there wasn't a sacrifice we weren't willing to make for Jesus and his kingdom. Churches can have their own version of the good old days. Uh, the church, the Protestant church worldwide, will, will have a bit of that this year as we come up to the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. We will spend time reflecting on the, the Reformation as the good old days, the times when God was wonderfully and powerfully at work in his church. Sometimes denominations have their own version of the good old days, a time of revival, a time of mission, a time where people were converted, where the church was growing and expanding. 
Individual churches can have their own version of the good old days. Uh, maybe, maybe a time under a certain pastor. Oh, when so-and-so was pastor, oh, it was really good in our church. Sometimes I've heard it, uh, many times I've heard it, if churches talk about the days when they were planted. Oh, when we were first planted and we were so excited uh, and we all knew each other and we all knew what we were doing. They were the good old days. Now, it, it, it can be wonderfully encouraging to think about the past. It can be wonderfully encouraging to reflect on God's faithfulness to his church and his people and us and his work in us in the past. But there is a danger that goes with it. And a danger which God addresses in this chapter where he says that he is not just the God of the past, but he is the God of today. Now, in order to summarize this chapter, I'm going to use what is possibly the worst slogan in Australian political history. Our wonderful slogan by our now Prime Minister of continuity and change. Who comes up with this rubbish? But it fits here. This is a chapter of continuity and change. The change side of it is obvious, isn't it, as, as we go through. There is a changing of the prophet, a changing of the mouthpiece of God speaking to his people. A transition from Elijah, who has been the faithful prophet for many years, to Elisha, who God had called in 1 Kings 19, which we had a look at last week. And everything in this passage, particularly the first half of it, on the journey that Elijah and Elisha takes, is that Elisha is the chosen heir of Elijah. He is the well-equipped, well-suited, God-appointed mouthpiece of God in Israel. Uh, this is the change that is happening. We know that right from verse 1. Uh, verse 1 tells us that at the time when the Lord was about to take Elijah to heaven in a whirlwind. Uh, Elijah knows it. Elisha knows it. The prophets know it. Other, other prophets who are faithful to God and speaking his word to the people. God knows it, but nobody talks about it. It's like an open secret. Everybody knows it. Nobody talks about it. But Elijah's about to go and Elisha's about to take his place. And everything that Elisha does on this outward journey highlights that he is the right man for the job. Elijah keeps saying to him, every, every time they come to a stop, Elijah keeps saying, All right, why don't you stay here and, and I'll go on a little bit further. And Elisha says, uh-uh, I, I am going with you. He, he wants to be there when Elijah is taken. Elijah asks Elisha, uh, what do you want from me? Uh, and it's quite similar to the question that God asked Solomon at the start of the books of Kings, isn't it? And Solomon answered, the guest answer, I want wisdom. Elisha answers with the best answer. I want a double portion of your spirit. He recognizes that the role of prophet can only be done with the empowerment and the work of the Spirit of God. And that's what he wants. He wants the same spirit that has rested on Elijah to rest on him. He needs to be equipped by God for this work. He's not gung-ho, I can do this, I need God. He is there when Elijah is taken up into heaven and the chariots of, 
uh, of fire. Uh, and he receives, and this is the sign that he receives the double portion of the Spirit. That double portion is the sign of the firstborn. You know, so the firstborn son in the family would get the double portion. The heir and successor of the father, Elisha gets the double portion. He is the heir and the successor of Elijah. When Elijah gets taken up, he cries out, My Lord, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He recognizes that the true power for Israel is not in its army, it's not in his voice, but it is in God himself. He gets to wear the cloak that Elijah wore, the one that was thrown over him when he was called to be a prophet. We saw that last week. He uses that cloak and he strikes the Jordan River and it, and it moves as he prays to God to answer his prayer. Everything is pointing to this change is taking place. Elisha, the chosen mouthpiece of God, and he is well suited to that task. Now, having said that as a very long introduction, that's not what we're going to focus on this morning. What we're going to focus on is actually the continuity part of this passage. You notice that there's, there's a journey out and back going on here. To Bethel, to Jericho, to the Jordan, across the Jordan, back to the Jordan, back to Jericho, back to Bethel. The journey out, the focus is on the change. The journey back is the focus is on continuity. Because while the mouthpiece of God might have changed, the prophet might be different. And the situation on the ground might be radically different and changing. The God of the prophet has not. The God of Israel is the same yesterday and today. And we're going to look at the three incidents on the way back which draw this out. And the first incident is the one where Elisha crosses back over the Jordan River. Elijah has been taken up. He has his cloak. Elisha gets to the Jordan River. He prays to God. He does exactly the same thing that Elijah, Elijah did. He rolls the cloak up. He strikes the water. The water parts and he passes across on dry ground. Now, this is wonderful affirmation for Elisha, isn't it? You know, that wonderful affirmation from God that he is the one. But there is more than that going on. Because this incident is seen by others. It is seen by the 50 prophets of Jericho. And they are not just seeing Elisha come back in the same way that Elijah went out. They are seeing something that reminds them of another time in their history, aren't they? You see, there was another time in their history where one leader had passed the baton on to another leader. Where Moses had handed over to Joshua. There was another time in their history where the new leader had stood at the Jordan River and the waters had parted and he had crossed over with the whole people behind him on dry ground into the promised land. They are seeing a reenactment of God powerfully bringing his people into the promised land. See, 
remember last week, we, we, we saw that there are 7,000 faithful people in Israel, even though the nation is corrupt. 7,000 people who had in their mind that God had worked wonderfully and powerfully in their past. God had brought them out of Egypt. God had led them across the river. God had brought them into the promised land. He had given them, uh, he had given them food that they did not plant. He had given them wine from vineyards they had not tended. He had given them cities which they had not built. He had powerfully driven out enemies before him. What is God saying? I'm not just the God of the past. I am the God of power for today. My power is the same today as it was yesterday. Even though Israel might be corrupt and evil, even though it might be a day of small things, God's power does not change, does not weaken, does not lessen. It's very easy for churches to look at their past and to either glorify or demonize that past. It's very easy for churches to look at certain people from history and either glorify or demonize that person. Oh, wouldn't it have been wonderful, we say, to be in the church at the time of the Reformation and to see the Word of God get put into back, in, back into people's hands and see hearts flamed up and churches rising up and mission happening. Well, some of us might say, wouldn't it have been wonderful to be a Christian at the time of the Puritans? Oh, when, when, when the, the heartfelt songs were being written and there was wonderful, wonderful uh, hearts devoted to God. Or wouldn't it have been time wonderful to be part of at times one of the great awakenings oh, and to see all of those people, people converted? Or wouldn't it have been wonderful to be around under the ministry of so-and-so when God was really at work and really powerful? It can be wonderfully encouraging to think about what God has done in the past. And it can be uh, wonderfully heartening to remember how faithful God is. But it shouldn't lead to discouragement. Because the God of yesterday is the God of today. God might work in different ways in different times. And he might work in different ways through different people. And there will be days of big things. And there will be days of small things. But God's power does not change. God is as powerful today as he was yesterday and as he will be tomorrow. Our job is not to go, want to go back to a wonderful time in history. Our job is not to demonize the past or to glorify the past. Our job is not to demonize someone's ministry or glorify someone's ministry. Our God job is to be faithful to the powerful God who is at work today. To respond to His call and His work today. Whether that be a day of big things or a day of small things, it doesn't matter. We can't say, 
I will get more passionate about church and ministry and serving and worship when I see God doing bigger and more wonderful and more powerful things. We can't sit back and hold back waiting for God to work. Because God is powerful today. And He's at work today. And He calls us to be faithful and to respond to Him today. Well, that's the first incident that we want to have a look at. Uh, The second one uh, is the incident which takes place with the water uh, in the city of Jericho. Uh, There is another little incident that happens in between there. Uh, You notice that the 50 prophets, they come to Elisha and they say, uh, we want to go and look for Elijah. Maybe the Spirit of God took him up and dropped him down on a mountainside somewhere. We want to go. And Elisha says, don't bother. I saw what happened. But they, they keep insisting. They wear him down. He says, all right, go. And for three days they search, and they come back, and Elisha says, I told you so. Um, what I think this is doing, it is affirming that Elijah is gone. Okay, God uses this as affirmation that Elijah is gone, and Elisha is, is the one. He's all that's left. But then the scene moves from outside of the city of Jericho to inside of the city of Jericho. And the, and the men of the city, it's probably like the elders of the city, they come to Elisha, who they recognize now the prophet of God, and they say, look, it looks wonderful here. You know, it looks awesome, but there is a problem. Our water is bad. And we should understand that this, this is not just that the water tastes bad. The water is bad. A little later on, we read that it, it causes death and miscarriages in people, and in the land. Crops aren't growing. Animals aren't being born healthy. Babies aren't being born because of this water. So Elisha says, well, bring, bring to me, uh, it's there uh, in verse 2020. 20. He says, bring to me a new bowl and some salt. Now, why a new bowl and some salt? I think that Elisha is using common everyday elements. And the new bowl is not so, at, afterwards people will say, oh, that bowl was used for this before. And so if you add that with salt, you find this wonderful cure. The whole point is that this is not a wonderful cure that somebody comes up with. But God is at work through Elisha, through his word. Because have a look at what it says there uh, in verse 21. And then he went to the spring of water and he threw salt in it and he said, Thus says the Lord. This is the prophetic formula. This is, this is the prophetic utterance. This is God speaking his word through his prophet Elisha. And then at the end he said, So the water had been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. It's not Elisha's word. It's the word of God that he spoke. What's the point here? God has wonderfully and miraculously healed this water through his word by the power of his word. Now, we might say, okay, well, this is another another instance then when God shows his power. But I want to suggest there's more than that going on here. Where are they? They're at the city of Jericho. Remember Jericho? After Israel crossed across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land, Jericho is the first city they came across. And God said, 
March around it every day. And on the seventh day, march around it seven times, blow your trumpets, and what happened? The walls came down and the city was absolutely ruined, absolutely laid bare. Now, at the end of that, what did God say? God said, don't rebuild Jericho. Okay? The city should stay a ruin as a sign of God's power and a sign of his judgment on the people of the land. What happens in 1 Kings 16? This guy named Hael from Bethel decides to rebuild Jerusalem. When God said, don't do it, he said, he said if anybody does it, they're going to lay the foundation on the death of their firstborn and they're going to put the gates in place on the death of their secondborn. What happened when Hale rebuilt the city in 1 Kings 16? He laid the foundation at the death of his firstborn and he put the gates in place at the death of his secondborn. That curse had come about and that curse was still going on. This bad water, that's a sign of God's judgment. Don't do this. What's happening here? On a day of rebellion, on a day when the sword of judgment hangs over Israel's head, on a day when people run after false gods, God, by his word, brings grace and healing and forgiveness. What a wonderful, what a wonderful message right at the start of Elisha's ministry. Elisha's ministry will speak a lot of judgments. It's going to happen. It is going to come. But what's God saying right at, the, right at the start of it? Even in there, the word of God brings grace and healing and forgiveness. God's powerful and effective word can bring healing and grace and forgiveness to the most rebellious the most vile the most despicable that is a word which needs to be heard over and over and over again that is the gospel word that needs to go out loudly and boldly and clearly over and over again. That God, through his word, brings grace. And he brings healing. And he brings forgiveness. There are far, far too many Christians, followers of Jesus, who walk around burdened by unnecessary guilt who have guilt which drive them in the wrong direction away from Jesus rather than to Jesus. Who are scared to open up God's word because they fear it is only a word of judgment rather than a word that brings grace and healing and forgiveness in our lives. There are too many followers of Jesus who feel like they've gone too far. Walked away for too long. Been gone for too long. 
for fear that the only thing they're going to get from God and his word is further judgment and guilt that they feel. Maybe you feel like that sometimes. Maybe you know people in that situation. Sometimes the way that we relate to them sends the wrong message. It reinforces the message of guilt and judgment rather than the message of grace and healing and forgiveness. Even in dark days, even in a day of small things, even in a day of rebellion and of judgment, God's word comes with grace and healing and forgiveness. That guilt should drive us back to Jesus, not away from him. That guilt should drive us back into his word, not away from it. That word is the place where we should go to be reminded of his love and his power and his forgiveness for us in Jesus. Well, that's the second incident that we want to have a look at. The third one. Uh, comes in those last few verses from verses 23 to 25, where 42 young boys get mauled, torn apart, probably killed, uh, by two bears. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for that today. Ah, we wish, we wish. All right, what's going on here? Firstly, let's start start with what's not going on here. Um, This is not a lesson to children not to call people names. Okay, kids, you listen to this. You shouldn't call people names. All right, let's just say that. But don't fear that if you do, bears are going to come out of the woods and tear you up. Okay, that's, that's not the story. This is not about some naughty little boys uh, calling somebody some names. What is going on? What, what, what's happening here? Let's notice a couple of things. Uh, notice the number of boys that there are. Uh, it says that 42 of them were torn apart by the bears. Okay, so this is more than 42, so at least 43. But the, maybe the implication is there's actually a lot more. This is a whole, a whole gang of young boys. Estimates are probably between the ages of about 12, uh, sorry, 10 and 14 that we're talking about here. Where is it happening? Location, location, location. It, it, it's important. Elisha has gone up from Jericho, gone up to Bethel. Okay? What's significant about Bethel? Well, as Israel came into the promised land and began to settle after Jericho was destroyed, they needed a place to put the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God lived. And so they placed it at a place called Bethel. What does Bethel mean? The house of God. This is the place where God had made his presence in Israel. Now, a little later on, when David built Jerusalem and he built the temple, the, uh, the tabernacle went up to, into Jerusalem. That became the new home from God. But what we're dealing with now is we're dealing with a time when the kingdom has been divided in two halves. In the south, you have Judah, where there is Jerusalem. 
and in the north you have Israel. Now when the north split up, the king at the time, uh, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, I'm going to get it wrong, one of those two, he says, I can't have everybody wandering down south to go to Israel, to go to, go to Jerusalem, to worship God in the temple. We've got to have our own place. Hey, hang on. We've got in our back pocket here Bethel. That was the place where God was first dwelling amongst us. We can go back there. So what did he do? He built two golden calves. And he put them in Bethel. And he said to Israel, Here is your God. Go there to worship him. Bethel has become the heart of the anti-God rebellion. It's become the heart, the very core of everything that rebels against God. It's become the heart of the alternative saviour. So what's happening here? As Elisha goes up, and most likely his boldness is a reference to something that symbolizes his prophetic role, that he is the mouthpiece of God. You have boys who are the product of a rebellious city mocking the mouthpiece of God. They are mocking God's word and work. They are saying, we don't want it. We don't want your God. We don't want his word. We have our own God here in the city. Now the punishment is harsh. But the punishment fits the crime. Because it's not just a punishment on the 42. It is a punishment on the whole city. On 42, mums and dads. On cousins and uncles and aunts who live and who worship in a city of rebellion. What's, what's the message here? God is a God of power today. He is a God of grace today. But don't, don't ignore him. Don't reject him. Because judgment is coming. And it is already here. Today is the day to also respond, to hear, to listen, to repent, to turn to this God. Because today and near is also a day of judgment. Remember a couple of years ago, we, we worked through the, the, book, the start of the books of 1 Kings when we looked at Solomon. And we said the books of 1 and 2 Kings explain why Israel and Judah end up under God's judgment in foreign lands. Right? By the end of this book, Israel will be taken away and it will not be heard of again. It will be gone off the face of the earth. Judah will be gone, sitting in exile, wondering if there is any way back. What is God saying to them? 
He is the God of power today. The God of grace today. Today is also the day to turn to him. To come back before the sword falls down. Don't rely on a golden day of the past. Don't rely on your heritage. Don't rely on the special relationship you had with God. It doesn't excuse you. It actually makes you more accountable. Turn back to God today. Well, as we've been going through, you've, you've realized, you've come to see that uh, Elisha has been following the steps of Israel, hasn't he? Across in the desert, across the Jordan, into Jericho, up to Bethel. The place where God had dwelt, the place that has now become the center and the seat of Israel's rebellion. That journey is going to be repeated again by another man in a different way. Like the transition from Moses to Joshua and Elijah to Elisha, there will be a transition from John the Baptist to Jesus. Jesus will have visibly and audibly, the Spirit of God descend upon him and empower him for his work in the Jordan River. He will come up out of that river and he will go into the desert around Jericho. He will be tempted by Satan and yet he will remain faithful to his Heavenly Father. He will pass through Jericho and he will heal two blind men as a sign of God's grace. And from there he too will go up, but not up to Bethel. He will go up to a cross and there he will bear the judgment and the punishment of God on sin. And there he will take what we deserve. And there he will bear the sin of his people. So that the gates can be flung open wide. So that people can turn today back to their God and their creator that people can know and experience the power of God in their lives today. So that we can know and experience the grace and the mercy and the healing and the forgiveness of God in our lives today. Don't rely on some privilege from the past. I say especially to children and young people. Don't rely on the fact that you have a wonderful Christian heritage. Christian parents, 
Christian variant parents and a lifetime of going to church and Sunday school. Today is the day to turn to God and to know his power and his grace. Don't ever think that you have wandered too far. That you have gone beyond God's reach. Because Jesus has opened up the gates wide so that you can come back to God today. Don't think that just because this is a day of small things, nothing will happen and nothing can change. Because he is the God of power and of grace and forgiveness today. Let's pray to him, shall we? Lord God, we, we thank you for that road that Elisha took. But we thank you most, most significantly for the road which Jesus took. Thank you that he went up the hill of the cross. He was mocked. He was jeered. But thank you that he took the punishment for sin in that act. Suffered the curse of our rebellion so that we could come back to you. We thank you that your love, your power, your grace is the same today as it was yesterday and will be the same tomorrow. Thank you that you are our God today. May you work in our hearts. May you draw us back to you today, we pray. Amen.